Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today, we'll be unpacking the reduced penalties for drug offenses in Ohio, HBO's new docuseries, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and Justin Bieber's lawsuit against the false accusations that occurred back in 2015 in segment one. In segment two, we will be coming through on our promise from last week, discussing why police are allowed to lie to us and how and when they use those lies. To make sure you don't miss an episode, make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, and on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at T-L-O-B-J. You can also find our information using the hashtags no walk, no talk, and no blow. For all the information you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that the Ohio Senate passed a new law reducing penalties for drug offenses. Yes, I did. Um, what's the reason for them doing that? Is it because they want to clear out the jails or are there other reasons? That is one factor in why this legislation has bipartisan support. It passed the Senate by a vote of 25 to four, I believe. It was heavily supported in the Senate. It's now on its way over to the Ohio House and assuming it passes the House, Governor DeWine is expected to sign it. Prison overcrowding has been a significant problem across the nation for about 25 years, ever since the tough on crime legislation of the early and mid 90s uh, increased the prison population drastically. Remember, the United States of America has the highest rate of incarceration of any developed nation by threefold. So prisons are overcrowded. You've got people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s serving lengthy prison terms for minor drug possession crimes as the result of the three strikes policy of the early 90s and, and into the 2000s. The reclassification of felony possession to misdemeanor really gives justice to the distinction between people who have a drug addiction, which is a, which is a health issue, an addiction issue, a mental health issue, and people who deal drugs. Now, traffickers will still be classified as felons if they're convicted of that crime. And it also expands the availability for a program unique to Ohio called Intervention in Lieu of Conviction. Wow, that is, it seems like it's great, but also dangerous to reduce the penalties for people who possess drugs. I mean, what is your feeling on that? So drug abusers need treatment, not incarceration. Incarceration has been shown by study after study to be an ineffective way of getting people off of drugs. Even the threat of incarceration is an ineffective way of getting people off of drugs. So what Ohio will now be able to do is redirect resources from the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections into probation departments, into community action groups that can provide treatment and provide funds to treatment providers so that they can actually use 
medically verified methods to get people off of drugs and reduce the drug addiction rate in our communities. The Ohio Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Ohio Justice Alliance for Community Corrections, which is an organization made up of uh, probation officers and a variety of other organizations have supported this legislation. So not only is the criminal defense community in support of this, but probation officers are as well. Our office is uh, on the board of directors for both of those organizations in full disclosure. Wow, it's really great to see that everybody is getting behind a bill that is going to improve the situation with COVID-19 as well as really right-sizing penalties for the crime and giving people exactly what they need to get better instead of just throwing them in jail and getting them treatment. And you know, I know that you know, you've, you've even supported lots of programs outside of your law firm to help out with those situations. And so this has got to be amazing news for you. We do, Erica. We're, we're heavy supporters of local treatment facilities, and we coined the term and the, the practice method. We created the practice method that we call holistic criminal defense. And we started this program in our office back in 2010. And so for the last 10 years, we've been defending our clients in court and advocating for them in the community to make sure that they get the treatment that they need to make sure that they don't become clients of our office again. That's fantastic. And I mean, I know it's great to get repeat business, but <laughs> in this case, you really do have your clients' best interests at heart. And I think that's just fantastic. What we've found, Erica, is that the clients that we have the most success with are often the ones that refer two, three, four new people to us. Because the reality is, is that people who use and are addicted to drugs, they, they have a community around them of other people who are drug addiction and drug users. So when they refer those multiple clients to us, it really is um, an, an exponential growth factor for our office. Well, that's great. I mean, it's, I know that you have a good heart and that you really want the best for them. And it's nice that, um, you know, when you do good things for people, it, it seems like it just, it comes back tenfold. So that's wonderful to hear. One of my mentors always says givers get. So we want to make sure that we're givers. Erica, did you also see that Joseph D'Angelo who's been dubbed the Golden State Killer, admitted guilt to a variety of charges and entered into a plea agreement that will have him going to prison for the rest of his life. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, I haven't seen the new series you were talking about earlier, but I'm definitely going to take a look at it. What, a, what an incredible story. The HBO series, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, recently debuted. And it's giving additional attention to this, uh, this spree of murders from uh, the 1970s in California. Uh, the Golden State Killer was only identified after law enforcement combed through genetic profiles uh, that were posted on the uh, genealogical site, uh, I believe it was 23andMe. And remember that we had this conversation about giving your DNA uh, giving your genetic code to these public sites who then work hand-in-hand -hand with law enforcement. 
So while in this case, it seems that it worked out well in the interest of justice, remember that these agencies will give up your profile. And we've also had conversations about how DNA profiles can be inaccurate at times. So turning over your genetic information to these agencies can result in false allegations. I think it's only a matter of time before a person is falsely accused and potentially convicted of a heinous crime as the result of an erroneous identification through one of these, uh, one of these private corporations. Wow, that's, that's really scary uh, when you think about it. It's, it's like you're just setting yourself up for failure someday if you're giving out your genetic information because of the way that the justice system is set up. Well, privacy is really important. And making sure that that which is private and important stays private and important is a, is a right and an obligation of every citizen. What's really strange about this case is that the prosecution and defense reached an agreement not only in regards to the charges that Mr. D'Angelo was facing, but also reached an agreement that he would admit to a variety of uncharged crimes in a bid to give closure to the, uh, the survivors. Wow. I don't know if that's common or not, but is it really justice if you don't know for sure that he did those crimes? And who gets to decide what justice is for the survivors? Is it the prosecutors? Wasn't Marzi's law and victims' rights amendments laws supposed to stop these types of backroom deals? Well, I think whether this is justice for the survivors is an individual choice for those survivors. Remember, there are the majority of cases, according to survivors groups, that never get charged, let alone result in convictions. So I think as far as whether this is sufficient closure for them is an individual choice that they need to make and, and honestly work through in their personal lives or possibly therapy. Whether prosecutors did the right thing in this case or not, is, is a decision that I think society at large will uh, weigh in on in the coming weeks. And we know that Mr. D'Angelo will be spending the rest of his life in prison. That is a joint agreement between the defense and the prosecution. I don't see any possibility of the judge going against that joint agreement. So for his crimes, Mr. D'Angelo will never see the outside of a prison cell for the rest of his life. You know, what is justice for these individuals? Well, you're, these people are never gonna get their loved ones back. The, the people that were traumatized and survived their attacks by Mr. D'Angelo are never gonna be able to unlive that experience. So they have to make that decision on their own. You know, Ohio, as you mentioned, adopted uh, Marcy's Law and a Victim's Rights Amendment to the Ohio Constitution, and California has a similar law. The reality is, is that Marcy's Law has been applied here in Ohio not to really attain justice for accusers and survivors, because time and time again, I see accusers come into court and voice their desire for charges to go away, for charges to be reduced, for penalties to be reduced, and prosecutors refuse to listen to them. More, it's been used as a way to suppress and exclude criminal defendants from the evidence that they need to prove their innocence. 
And in that regard, Marcy's Law and the Victims' Rights Amendments that were passed in the mid-2000s really are an injustice to everybody. Because shouldn't a criminal trial be a search for the truth where all evidence is available to both parties? I think so. I absolutely agree with you. And I'm glad that uh, the things are moving in that direction. And speaking of having evidence available to all parties, Justin Bieber had the evidence necessary to demonstrate that allegations against him of sexual assault back in 2015 were in fact false. And he's filed a civil defamation lawsuit against his accusers. Wow. It seems like he's very fortunate that he had the records to prove that he was somewhere else. And you always have that in the back of your mind when somebody famous is accused. Is it because there's a gold digger out there just trying to either get revenge or get money? Or was there really a serious situation that happened? In this case, I'm, I'm glad that he was able to prove his innocence. And it's too bad that there are people out there that would falsely accuse him and you know take advantage of the Me Too movement. It just it takes air out of that balloon and where there are serious cases where people do need that light shined on um, sexual assault and, and, accu and accusations and things that happen. But, um, you know, in this case, you know, it wasn't true and, and people shouldn't be accused and have to pay for situations that they, they, they weren't responsible for. This case highlights the disparity between the haves and the have-nots in the criminal justice system. Justin Bieber, being an international superstar, was able to be in a location across the continent, have the receipts to verify where he was in order to demonstrate and prove an airtight alibi for these allegations. Had Justin Bieber simply been in the same city at the time that these allegations occurred, the stain of the allegations would stay with him. But of course, Justin Bieber is a jet set superstar. So he could literally be on the other side of the continent and prove that. And I think the other thing that you mentioned, Erica, is, is exactly correct. This is a really interesting twist for the Me Too movement. Because while Justin Bieber has been very careful to be very supportive of women and state that women who accuse men of sexual assault should be believed and, and men who make accusations of sexual assault should be believed. He has also come out and said these things should be investigated and done so thoroughly. He hasn't admitted any fault in this and he's taken a very aggressive approach to his career and, and defending his reputation as, as a good person, as a good human being who doesn't engage in that sort of violent sexual conduct. You know, these, these accusers, as you said, have taken advantage of the, the sweep and the breadth of the Me Too movement, combined with the anonymity of the internet to level these charges. And whether it was for financial gain, as you suggested, or just simple fame, um, we will likely find out over the course of the, this lawsuit. What I think is, is a really important thing to highlight in this case is, it, of course, again, Justin Bieber, being a wealthy individual, had the opportunity to get a lawyer right away. 
and start building his defense immediately. And that legal team helped him identify the evidence and gather the information necessary to fight this case, not only in the court and make sure that he was never indicted in the first place, but also in the court of public opinion and get word out about his alibi defense in this case. The most important things to take away from this are, number one, Justin Bieber was an educated individual who knew his rights and knew what to do in this situation. Number two, he acted on that knowledge. He retained a lawyer. Justin Bieber probably has lawyers on retainer all the time. However, uh, anybody can walk into a lawyer's office and retain them for the limited purpose of pre-indictment representation, pre-charge representation. And a skilled criminal defense attorney who focuses their practice on sexual assault defense knows the steps to take and the evidence to gather in that situation. The last thing I think is really important about this particular case is that Justin Bieber chose to fight back. And what I've always said to my clients, um, jurors, prosecutors, is that an allegation of sexual assault and, and a true instance of sexual assault is one of the most heinous things that can happen between two individuals. But in my opinion, what's more heinous is a false allegation of sexual assault. Because when somebody is sexually assaulted, that assault occurs to that individual. But when a person makes a false allegation of sexual assault, they cause harm to the person they've accused and they cause harm to all of the other people who have actually been sexually assaulted. And it reduces the believability across the board for these sorts of cases. Now, my office has fought to support those who have been falsely accused of sexual assault. And we have recovered hundreds of thousands of dollars on behalf of our clients who have been falsely accused, not only of sexual assault, but a variety of other crimes. I know you guys do an amazing job too. I, I know you've gone out and done your own research and investigations. Uh, you help your clients really stave off the tarnished reputation that would absolutely be in their future if they didn't have you. And you have the strategies to help out with that. And I think that's so valuable. And it's good for Justin. Not, not everybody knows exactly how to fight something like this. And that's why he got a professional. And that's why everyone else should too, if they are falsely accused of um, sexual assault. Absolutely. It's important to retain an attorney and have an advocate who knows what to do in these situations, which is why we have the constitutional rights that we have. And that's a great segue to segment two today, which is about police, their lives, and why the United States Supreme Court has allowed police to get away with lying to us during the entire history of our nation. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution prevents police from extracting involuntary confessions. We have a privilege against self-incrimination and a guarantee of due process during any police questioning. However, throughout history, 
police in the United States and even all the way back into England before we were the United States used force. They would beat and torture confessions out of suspects. And that torture continued through our country's history all the way into the 1950s and 60s. It took a United States Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Mississippi, in 1936 to even put a shadow of doubt on the legitimacy of those brutal police tactics. And long after that Supreme Court decision came down, police continued to use physical violence as a means of extracting confessions from the accused. When finally courts across the nation decided that they were gonna follow the law from Mississippi versus Brown and started excluding confessions that were extracted from physical violence, police changed their tactics to using psychological violence against the people they suspected of criminal conduct. Now today, there are some protections that exist against that police co coercion. The first is the Miranda warnings that we all know and love. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have a right to an attorney, and if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. And while we hear those warnings on cop shows all the time, very few people understand what those rights and privileges mean. The other protection we have is the law that a confession must be voluntary. And here, I think we need to talk about a key distinction between a confession and an admission, because often these things are used interchangeably, most frequently by police and court, but they are really separate ideas. A confession is an admission to committing a crime and having committed that crime in its total. An admission is an acknowledgement that a particular fact supports circumstantial evidence, but it remains a denial of responsibility for a crime. The distinction between a confession and an admission can be really highlighted by the old trope, Johnny eating the cherry pie. Now, in, in this trope, Johnny's mom has picked a cherry pie for the family dinner. And the and mom goes off to get herself ready, get herself dressed for dinner. And when she comes back downstairs, she sees cherry pie filling on Johnny's collar. And Johnny says, gosh, yeah, that's strange. There is cherry pie filling on my collar. Now, that's an admission that there is cherry on Johnny's shirt. But does that mean that Johnny is the person that ate the cherry pie? And it could very well be that Johnny was getting a glass of water. And over the course of getting the glass of water, his sleeve uh, brushed some pie filling that the actual consumer of the pie left on the counter and then brushed his collar and he got it on his shirt. There are a variety of ways that that circumstantial evidence could come into existence. And Johnny could admit that that circumstantial evidence exists, but that is not a confession to having eaten the pie. I see, that's a really great example of you know, the difference between confession and admission. And I had not really thought about that before, but I can see where that would be a very important thing to know when you are defending a case. So why are police allowed to lie to us? 
Police are allowed to lie to us because the Supreme Court of the United States has found that confessions have to be voluntary and without physical coercion. But they don't care whether they're free from powerful psychological ploys that extract confessions through interrogation. Now, interrogation is another one of those really specific words. Interrogation is custody plus questioning. So a person is not free to leave a particular location and a series of questions or suggestions designed to extract incriminating information. This is where Miranda comes into play. Those Miranda rights come into play, which is gonna be the topic of segment two next week. So you're saying that because the police can no longer use brute force to get a confession out of someone that they have in custody, they are using strong psychological tactics and lies. And, you know, I can see where that kind of coercion can go very wrong because whether you're innocent or guilty, if you are getting questioned by police officers and you're in custody, you're already very nervous. I mean, it's not a normal situation. And, you know, oftentimes if someone of authority that has so much power is near you, you might just get nervous anyway, whether you're guilty or not. So I can see where that can be, uh, you know, a really interesting strategy for the police because they've kind of already got you where they want you. And so I wanted to ask too, what about controlled calls where the cops lie to the suspect on the line about circumstances that they're investigating? Isn't this the same effect without the warning we are constitutionally guaranteed? The, the controlled call doesn't get the Miranda warnings because it's not a custodial interrogation. And that's, that's really the big distinction that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States has made is that custodial interrogation carries with it an inherent pressure uh, that non-custodial interrogation just doesn't have according to the Supreme Court. And this is one of the first areas where lying became really popular for the police. The, the police would put an accuser online with the accused and have the accuser make all of these misstatements, all of these lies. Um, you know, I've, I've told the police X, Y, and Z, and now they have DNA evidence to prove my allegations. I wish you would just confess to this so that everything can be back to normal between us. And the reality is, is that those statements aren't true. You know, the accuser may have made the statements to police, but there's no evidence to support it. And it really, it, it's a ploy that manipulates the accused person, both on an interpersonal emotional level and a psychological level of, you know, it's, it's gaslighting. You know, there, there are these facts that aren't true. And if you don't believe they're true, you must be crazy. The Supreme Court didn't just come out in 1936 and say, lies are great, go for it. It was a slow buildup of decisions allowing police to falsely claim first that a suspect's co-defendant had confessed in a case where he actually didn't. That's Frazier versus Cup in 1969. Um, the Supreme Court endorsed police lying and saying that they had found the suspect's fingerprints at a crime scene 
where no such fingerprints were found, Oregon versus Mathiasson in 1977. And then it was a variety of state court decisions throughout that time and, and ongoing, permitting police to deceive suspects about a variety of factual matters, including falsely stating that incriminating DNA evidence had been found at a scene, or satellite photography verified that they were at a particular location. It's important, Erica, to remember that a police officer's role today is to identify suspects and charge them. They are not trained and they are not told by their superiors to be fair. They are not told to seek justice. They are told to accuse and charge. The old ways of protect and serve are long gone and police don't abide by that moral anymore. They say it's the role of the defense attorney, the role of the prosecution, the role of the jury and the judge to determine what's true or what's justice. All the more reason to have a really good criminal attorney. It, it does seem like you have an uphill battle if you have to do all of this additional research just to find out if the evidence that they were talking about is even real. Do you find that that's a really difficult part of the process? It is. It is because of the pushback that we get. You know, police lying and saying that they've located evidence that incriminates a suspect, like fingerprint evidence, um, semen, and other DNA, surveillance video, it, it really creates uh, an inherent mistrust in the system from the outset. So from day one, uh, a person that's been accused of a crime is lied to. So when, you know, in, in the second stage, they now go into the court. You know, in the first instance, they've never had any interaction with the police before in their lives. And they think that police officers are, are honest, upstanding people. And what they find out is that police lie to them. And then step two is they go and meet with their attorney. And they tell their attorney, well, yeah, the police are allowed to lie to me. And so the person that's supposed to be on their side has to give them this bit of really bad news that the courts just don't care about those lies. And so it, it ferments mistrust throughout the entire process. I mean, if we're getting guilty people convicted, what's the harm in getting them to confess and using a lie to ha make it happen faster? So there's, there's two problems with that. First is that people who are not guilty often confess to crimes that they never committed. And there's a variety of examples of that that we're gonna discuss in, in just a minute. But the other problem with that is that jurors are likely to adopt that exact ends justify the means attitude when it comes to the police lies. You know, you might think that jurors might hold the police's lies against them, but instead what they're seeing is that the judge endorses the lies, the prosecutor endorses the lies, the police officer endorses the lies, and, and the police officer's not getting in any trouble for that. So if the ends are justified, then the means are okay. So then jurors can go back into the jury deliberation room and reduce the burden of proof. 
juries can go back into the, the deliberation room and hold the defendant's right to remain silent and exercise of the right to remain silent against him or her. That can cause a domino effect of more and more wrongful convictions, which I don't think anybody ultimately wants. No, I mean, absolutely not. It just seems like it could be part of the reason why we have so many people in jail right now. I mean, is that what you would say as well? I think that's exactly right. That, you know, we go back to Ohio's adoption of a reduction of penalties for drug charges. We have an, we have an abundance of people incarcerated in this country and a significant percentage of them never did the acts that they're accused of doing that put them in those cages. So do you think that this attitude change that we're seeing now in the wake of the Black Lives Movement, um, you know, will, this, will we start to consider implicit bias in police use of lies during interrogation? For people who are predisposed to be suspicious of the government, to be suspicious of police, I think the answer is yes. Uh, people will, will look at police officers and look at their lies during the investigative process as evidence supporting their previously held beliefs. Those who are predisposed to support police, to believe that their actions are infallible, I think are just going to become even more entrenched the other way. This is uh, a systemic problem in our country of the divisions that people are experiencing with one another. I think that's a positive, a step, a step in a positive direction, for sure. I mean, when you can see the problem now and you can start doing things about it. Um, so you've talked a lot. I, I mean, I know that you have actually coined the phrase, no walk, no talk, no blow. I mean, but we're not talking about necessarily having a DUI here or a roadside stop. You know, we're, we're talking about just not talking to the police in general. So when are the police allowed to lie to us? And, and what would you suggest about when, when they do interrogate you? You hit the nail on the head right there. Police most frequently lie to people in the interrogation setting. Now, I would define interrogation much more broadly than the courts do. Now, the definition of custody is an objective view of the situation that the person being interrogated isn't free to leave. Now, Erica, let me ask you this. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer and the officer standing there at your window asking you, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Did you know you were speeding? Did you feel free to pull away from him and say, no, thanks officer. I'm not gonna answer your questions. I'm just gonna go about my business. No, I did not. And what do you think might happen to you if you did? Well, I would think that they would get mad and, and possibly arrest me. Or shoot at your car? Maybe. So the, the case law says that that's not a custodial situation. That's a voluntary encounter between you and that officer. So Miranda doesn't apply and the courts don't consider that interrogation. I disagree with them, but what we see is a questioning situation, a situation where the police are questioning an individual. And this is the most frequent time when they lie to us. You know, there is 
a widely accepted school of interrogation that is called the Reed Technique. And I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and become educated about the Reed Technique, the breadth of its use in American policing and the problems that it creates. So the Reed Technique is an unabashed advocate that police officers are not looking for the truth. They are in the interrogation room to extract confessions. That is the primary purpose of the Reed Technique. It has no interest in identifying truth. It has only interest in extracting confessions. It is literally a blueprint for how police lie to suspects and extract those confessions. Now, the Reed Technique's own materials warn that it is subject to extracting false confessions. Its own materials cite to the cases that have said, this is a dangerous technique to use and where courts have reprimanded officers for overplaying their hand with the Reed Technique and abusing the, the, the system. Many studies have found that the Reed Technique's form of psychological manipulation in particular targets lower functioning people, um, people with learning disabilities, people who are illiterate, and juveniles across the board. Wow, I mean, it seems like the stuff that movies are made of. It's, it's frightening and it really drives home why people shouldn't talk to the police. Absolutely, because you're playing checkers and they're playing chess. You, you are not on a level playing field. Once you are the target of an investigation, there is nothing you are going to say to convince that officer that you are not guilty of that crime. Again, remember, gather evidence, charge. They have no interest in identifying the truth anymore. The read technique frequently uses the word deception because you know, lie is such a dirty word. So they use the word deception. And that word is linked throughout the read technique to interrogation and, and throughout the case law to cases that focus on these interrogation dynamics. You know, and oftentimes the things that you see on television. Uh, we talked about how the standard of interrogation and, and what a custodial interaction is has been eroded over the years by the Supreme Court. You, know, you think about uh, an officer claiming that he can smell mar burning marijuana from a car driving by him on the highway. And how he, you know, you know, I smelled marijuana in that vehicle and I pulled him over when after a thorough search of the vehicle, no marijuana is found. You know, and we talked briefly about controlled calls where police can lie to the accused and the officer will assist the accuser in tricking the person that they're targeting for the investigation into making an admission or possibly even a confession. Well, people make misstatements all the time. I mean, they, they might be nervous. They may not have seen things correctly. I mean, if, if you ask anyone that has witnessed an accident, like say you ask five people, they'll all say they saw something different. So this tactic seems like a really risky one. 
I think you're exactly right, Erica. That this is this is an incredibly risky tactic, and I think it results in a lot of inaccurate statements, um, inaccurate admissions, and unfortunately, false confessions. You know, there is new scrutiny on police honesty in this day and age, especially now that we're seeing the great disconnect between what they report, what they write in their police reports and their narratives, and what actually occurred. You know, we think about the, the older gentleman in Buffalo who was assaulted by multiple police officers who then lied in their reports. Um, and there was video evidence refuting what they said um, in their reports because they were unaware of the fact that a media crew was filming them. The Black Lives Matter movement is inherently linked to police deception and more importantly, police accountability. Take, for example, the shocking case of The People versus Adrian Thomas, a, a black man coerced into confessing to assaulting and murdering his son. Now, the officers in that case lied to Mr. Thomas and said that his son was still alive, that, he, that Mr. Thomas would be treated leniently if he confessed, and that they had all the evidence they needed to convict him of it, but they could only save his son's life if he confessed to beating and murdering his son. And in all of his grief and fear over his son's life, Mr. Thomas confessed. Now, at the time of his confession, Mr. Thomas's son was already dead. And an autopsy revealed that Mr. Thomas's son was never, was never assaulted, but in fact, he had an infection. And that infection caused his death. But nevertheless, Law enforcement issued charges, prosecutors indicted him, and Mr. Thomas was tried and convicted of the murder of his son based almost entirely on that interrogation and the false confession that was extracted from him in that situation. I mean, this situation seems so sad. I, it's exactly what you don't want to happen and, and what your greatest fear is within the justice system. Having someone who's innocent confess under duress and then, you know, using something so emotional. Uh, I mean, I have a child, you have, you have children. You'd almost do anything for your kids. So they really had the cards to play to get a confession in that particular instance. And I find it incredibly sad that this poor man had to go through all that while also losing his son through no fault of his own. So I'm glad he was finally able to find justice, but it, it, seems, it seems like such an unnecessary uh, situation to happen. And, you know, I, it just makes me upset. He, and, and he was able to find justice. He was successful in his appeal of the admission of that false confession. Uh, he was retried based on the remaining evidence and acquitted by a jury who did not hear that false confession. The thing is, Erica, that police lies, they're not always big and, and directly in your face. It's the small lies that chip away at the faith that we've long had in the criminal justice system, what I call the criminal injustice system, over the long term. It's a, it's a weight um, on the people, and in particular, people, in, people of color. And we've borne that for decades. Um, 
People of color have borne that weight. People of low socioeconomic class have borne that weight. And that's the reason it's not just a race issue, but it's a class issue as well. Uh, there's recently a case uh, of a young autistic boy, he's five, six years old, who was shot by police. And when the hashtag all lives matter, he was a, he was a white boy, when the all lives matter movement wouldn't come to his defense and point out the police improper conduct at shooting and killing a small child, wouldn't come to that boy's support. The Black Lives Matter movement did. So the Black Lives Matter movement isn't just about race, but it's about how law enforcement has had its boot on our neck for decades. And they've only pushed down harder in a post 9-11 world. Well, so can a change in a juror's perceptions be on the horizon? Will jurors start to question the faith uh, in the ends to justify the means um, way that the police have been going about their business? For every lie uttered by a police officer, there's a defense attorney, a public defender, somebody out there fighting to rebut it, using investigative tools and the testimony of witnesses and nowadays video footage captured on cell phones and a variety of other sources shining a light on this issue of dishonesty by police officers, both endorsed and damned by their superiors in the courts. In my opinion, it's not until officers are punished by having evidence excluded and by suffering civil liability for their actions that they're gonna have any incentive to change. On that note, the fight continues. Erica, I wanna thank you for joining me today. And to everybody else, I want to remind you that to be more informed about how the government is expanding the criminal code, police and government are being held accountable more and more day, day by day. To find out more about why Ohio is reducing the penalties for minor drug crimes and how false, false allegations are real and how to fight back against them, check out tlobj.com for all the information you need about the criminal injustice system and your civil rights. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com, Central Ohio Criminal Defense, on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, at T-L-O-B-J. And you can find a lot of our material searching the hashtags, no walk, no talk, no bluff. We'll be back next week with a new sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as a discussion of Miranda warnings, when they apply, when they don't apply, and why your case won't be dismissed just because arresting officer didn't Mirandize you. My grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. To that I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.